Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Mikey Varis, the head coach of the U.S. Under-20 men's national team, which won its third straight CONCACAF title over the weekend while also qualifying for the Under-20 World Cup. And for the first time since 2008, the Men's Olympic Soccer Tournament. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories and on-site coverage of the men's and women's game. That's grantwall.com. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Mikey Varas in segment two. But let's bring in Witty. We are recording this on the 4th of July, my friend. Happy 4th. Happy 4th to you as well. And you mentioned the U.S. winning that under-20 championship in CONCACAF. There have been a lot of positive headlines for U.S. soccer in the last year, but I think few would struggle to compete uh, with how impressive that performance was uh, down in Central America. And then just overall, that feeling of positivity that you're starting to bring through multiple talented generations and that you know, the current crop of senior national team players is not just a one-off, but something that it seems like will happen regularly. Yeah, it's exciting. And I think you'll enjoy my interview with Mikey Varas. Really uh, appreciate getting him one-on-one over the weekend. It was actually after they qualified for the uh, Olympics, but before they beat uh, Dominican Republic 6-0 in the final and won that tournament. Dominican, by the way, qualifying for the Olympics, which is wild. Yeah. Um, and... Mikey Virus, really interesting guy. So I think you'll like that interview. Um, sort of under the radar, I think, in the sense, not as big a name as some of these coaches who have failed to lead the U.S. to Olympic qualification in the last three cycles. Jason Kreiss, Andy Herzog, Caleb Porter. Um, and yet Mikey Varas has the U.S. back in that tournament. Lots of news still, despite it being a holiday weekend. It is not a holiday weekend in Europe, my friend. And... <laughs> Uh, I always notice this on like July 4th, especially, but big news here on Monday, Tyler Adams gets the here we go treatment from Fabrizio Romano on his way to Leeds United. Look for that to be official in the coming days. And now you've got the band back together. Jesse Marsh, obviously, the American coach of Leeds United, coached Tyler Adams with the New York Red Bulls, coached him at Leipzig, now will coach him at Leeds United. Brendan Aronson, who Marsh coached at Salzburg, another American, uh, already bought this summer for Leeds. And I'm not entirely surprised by this, but I'm pretty excited by this. How about you? Well, I, I do find interesting that we had the conversation when Ricardo Pepe went to Augsburg and it was American ownership spending a lot of money on a player. Like, it, does it dampen it at all that these are people with previous or that it seems obviously like there is a genuine American influence in Leeds United? And I, my answer in this case would be no, because I saw, I, I, was, I always check the replies and things like this, and I saw that there were some Leeds fans saying, well, we sold Calvin Phillips to Manchester City for $45 million. We're buying Tyler Adams for up to 20 And we still have $25 million to spend on the rest of the squad. This is a good piece of business. This is us solving a problem in holding midfield. Calvin Phillips is an England international. And replacing him with a good player, someone that clearly will fit their system, 
and then going on and you know improving this squad. Leeds have done a lot of business in this transfer window. They've needed to because their squad was incredibly thin under Marcelo Bielsa by design. And so now you have a situation where Leeds can now kick on and really I take on the Jesse Marsh identity. And it's not necessarily something they had towards the end of the season. It was a Bielsa team trying to play like Jesse Marsh wants them to. And I think a combination of Aronson and Adams will implement that style. My only concern would be is that, you know, what happens if Leeds, you know, wins two of their first 11 games and then they're changing philosophy all over again. And Tyler Adams is kind of in a sticky club situation before the World Cup. I also think from a national team perspective... I don't think the Berhalter method and the Marsh method have a lot of commonalities in them other than Berhalter has tried to implement a pressing style with the United States that will obviously uh, fit these two players. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes Leeds must-watch television for the American viewers starting this fall uh, in early August, or I guess late summer, uh, when, when we see this team take the field because there are a lot of American influences in this team and there could perhaps be more. There's a lot of links between New York City's Tati Castellanos and Leeds as well to help solve their forward problem as well. I mean, my original concern when this possibility came up was actually asking the question, is this a lateral or not even quite lateral move for Tyler Adams to go from Leipzig a team that perennially qualifies for Champions League that got to the Champions League semifinals on a goal by Tyler Adams, by the way, uh, just a couple seasons ago to move to a team that was at toward the bottom of the Premier League, barely escaped relegation at the end of the season. But there's a couple things in play here, right? One, this is the economics of the Premier League being better than the economics of the Bundesliga so that I, it was this formative phone call I had about eight years ago with an executive from AC Milan who told me that, like, Stoke City is wealthier than we are. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this sort of dripping with disgust statement, but acknowledging the realities of the television income that the Premier League has, which is so much bigger than any other league in Europe, that even the mid and lower table teams in the Premier League can outbid storied clubs on the European continent. And so for Tyler Adams, I, I don't necessarily think this is an issue for him in his career. Like if you're going to be worrying, I don't think it's worth worrying too much about, is this a lateral or a downward move? He wants to see playing time. And that clearly was not going to happen under Tedesco at Leipzig, who plays differently in his style for his team than Marsh does with his teams. Tyler Adams is a much better fit for Jesse Marsh's style. And so, uh, it's intriguing to me to see a few more Americans back in the Premier League, uh, which hasn't been the case in recent years. There's still not a ton, but there's going to be more next season than we've seen. And so I think that's a good thing. And I think Tyler Adams and the way he plays could fit his team under Marsh's style, but also the style of the league that we generally see. Yeah, I think it's it's a league where certainly Tyler Adams is going to be in a lot of duels. It's going to be very uh, physical. I just wonder how Red Bully uh, Leeds is going to become and how I, I, I researched this morning. They're on to like six signings. If Jesse Marsh is going to be completely able to reshape this squad without really its key figures. And if you look at down the spine of the team, it was Melier in goal, uh, you know, Calvin Phillips and holding midfield, Rafinha in that creative role, and Bamford up top. You take out two of those four, 
and this team is taking on a completely different shape. This is Jesse Marsh's team now, and I think this signing furly, uh, further solidifies that. Again, the question is, is what's the ceiling on that in the Premier League? We saw Leeds finish in the top half in their first season under Bielsa, and that was remarkable considering where they'd come from. Is this going to be enough to be that sort of team? Uh, and how much different will they play compared to the rest of the league? And does that fit? Because we've seen, obviously, it's an, uh, it's an up-and-down, transitional, high-paced game in the Premier League. But... At the same time, we've never really seen a team lean into that sort of identity quite like this in the full-on 4-2-2-2 Red Bull pressing through balls transition energy. It was funny because I was prepping for an Inter-Miami game tonight, and I was just going through all the major statistics in MLS, and it's so obvious the ones that the Red Bulls lead in, you know, tackles, clearances, duels, pressing actions, like everything. It's like the Red Bulls firmly live up to their identity. And I wonder just how much Leeds will live up to that identity and how much it will work in the Premier League because it is different than how the rest of the league plays. This is about as American a situation in the Premier League as we've seen since the Fulham years when you saw so many Americans playing for Fulham, Clint Dempsey, Carlos Bocanegra, Brian McBride, Casey Keller, uh, Obviously, they still have Tim Ream and Jedi Robinson, and they're back in the Premier League this season. So still a, an American flavor to Fulham, but we haven't seen the American coach uh, as part of that equation uh, before with a bunch of Amer or at least several American players. By the way, I consider Jack Harrison American, mm. you know, at this point. So um, has anyone tried to get him to switch nations, by the way? Does he does he have an international like has he ever represented England? I don't believe so. He might have been a, a youth national team player from what I remember. Obviously, I think he came through the Academy of Manchester United, right? But uh, what what's like the... Because I remember Darlington Nagby was here for a very long time before he was eligible to switch to the U.S. Is he, like, was he not here long enough? Is that why he wasn't eligible for a switch? Or is he still holding out hope for the, the call-up? Actually, I mean, it would take two seconds to find out. I, I don't think Harrison would qualify at this point for... <laughs> I don't yeah. think he has for a U.S. passport. Yeah. But, uh, also consider him half American uh, just because he spent so much time here. But in any case, uh, Leeds United going to be, I think, must-watch TV for most American fans uh, in the new Premier League season. And I think that's an exciting development. Now, we are recording this on Monday, but it is before the U.S. women's national team's opening game of the CONCACAF qualifying tournament for the World Cup and the Olympics. They're taking on Haiti Monday night. We'll have plenty more on that tournament moving forward as I'm heading down to Monterey for games two and three, the decisive ones for World Cup qualifying. Um, also, the women's Euros uh, start Wednesday, England against Austria, England hosting that tournament. Uh, I'm looking forward to watching a large amount of that tournament, uh, which has... 16 teams the way the good old men's euros used to have and i wish more tournaments were like that at this point because at least the group stage is more worth watching when two of the four teams advance and not three um but i do want to ask you a little bit about the u.s qualifying for the men's olympic tournament i don't know how many of these games you ended up watching uh i watched a few um, especially the, the most important ones when it came to actually qualifying and just came away really impressed, especially in the night, Friday night, they won 3-0 against Honduras in Honduras in front of a hostile crowd 
and played good soccer, especially in the first half, the way the U.S. dominated passing and possession in that game. Yeah, the the people on Twitter who put together those clips of, hey, look at this passage in play. Um, I, I got to see some of the games, but when you see those moments... It's so cool to see a U.S. team play with that sort of character away from home because even in home, you know, under 20 and, and at Olympic qualifying tournaments, we've just seen the U.S. crumble in these sorts of spots. And uh, my, my radio uh, partner for Inter Miami is Thomas Rangan. He talks all the time about how when he was coaching under 20 teams, he picked a bunch of college players. There are very few players that were actually in a professional system. And last night I saw on social media, I think it was from MLS Buzz on Twitter, who was talking about how the number of professional minutes that the under-20 national team has seen is somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 compared to the other top teams, even in Mexico, where only maybe 5,000 professional minutes has been played amongst that entire group. They're waiting to get into the professional ranks by virtue of what MLS has done from an academy level and bringing those players up and trusting them. You think of a player like Cade Cowell, who plays basically every week for San Jose, is anchoring that team. Caden Clark has played a bunch of MLS minutes. There's a bunch of guys on the field who have played a ton. We have to thank the Philadelphia Union for getting uh, the U.S. over the line here. They've done an unbelievable job of bringing through players. And actually, in some, in some respects, to the detriment of their current MLS season, because they were on those guys to at least provide depth. It's so cool to see what the U.S. has done here. And again, I, I said this on the top. For me, it signals that this is not a one-off, that there are clubs in this country that are helping bring through the next generation of American players. You would love for it to be all 29 teams or 28 teams in MLS, but for some clubs, it's their model. It's FC Dallas's model to bring through young players. They're so responsible for the current senior national team. Philadelphia are so responsible for the under-20 national team. And there's a player from here and there all across the American landscape. There's an LA Galaxy player that goes to Portugal. There is an Inter-Miami player at left back now. There's players from all over, but realistically... It's the clubs that prioritize youth development, and you'd love for clubs to be able to do it all, right? To have full you know, competition at senior level and spend big money on DPs, but also bring through young players. But it's also cool that different clubs in MLS have different models, and they're help bringing through this next generation of American players and signaling that the next generation of American players will be just as strong as the previous one because we're starting to find a formula that works with youth development in this country. Yeah, and I think it's good to look at it like you are in terms of overall patterns over time of what we're seeing and sort of the big picture instead of maybe looking at specific individual data points. I do find it interesting that at the U20 level, the U.S. has actually been on a pretty good run. Now, most of that came under Tab Ramos coaching that team, but third straight CONCACAF championship at the U20 level for the U.S. And by the way, the last three... Under 20 World Cups, the U.S. has reached the quarterfinals. So mm -hmm. there has been success at this age level in a huge contrast with the failures at the U23 level. And U23 is a weird level anyway because they don't play that many games at, a, at a, the under 23 age. That just happens to be the, set, the setting for the Olympic tournament so that it doesn't compete with the World Cup for attention. But three cycles in a row of failing to qualify for the under 23 Olympics. And then finally, when the U.S. does qualify, it's actually the U-20s getting the job done again. Yeah. And if you go back to that Olympic qualifying tournament team, there are not a lot of players in that squad that appeared to have full national team futures, right? There are not a ton of players that you would say 
you know, are, are going to be on their way. And when you look at this squad, that might also be the case because if you think of the players that aren't there, right? Ricardo Pepe, Yunus Musa, Gio Reyna, Justin Che, who's at Hoffenheim from Dallas, Gaga Slonina, who's starting every week in Chicago, Obed Vargas, who got hurt mid, uh, hurt mid-tournament, Kevin Paredes, who's playing in Germany. There are a lot of players. So it's like, even here, a second level of under-20 talent but there's so much more depth now. You can bring through other players, whereas right. it, it always seems like you're never really qualifying with your best youth players. You bring them to the World Cup. You bring them to the Olympics. But qualifying is about can you get it done with that next level? And that's where the depth is coming in now. Because I think if you fielded a bet, your best under-23 squads in Mexico when they when they attempted to, and look, the European clubs wouldn't release players, and that was a tough job. But um, it, it's not it's not your best. And this might not necessarily have been the U.S.'s best here either, but that didn't matter because they have enough. They're being coached well. They have a very clear style of play that they executed game in and game out. They took care of the underdog story in the Dominican Republic, which is really cool. The fact that they're qualifying for their first world tournaments in the history of their country. Um, there, there's, there, there's so many cool stories that come out of this, but for me, the biggest is that the U.S. have a lot of talented young players, and I hope we start to see more of them get exported to Europe and get the shine that they deserve. It used to be that the thing the Dominican Republic was most famous for when it came to soccer was their former federation president once said about Seth Blatter, he compared him to, in the same sentence, Abraham Lincoln, Mahatma Gandhi, <laughs> um, and this whole host, of like Albert Einstein. It was like one of the great suck up European or, or quotes of all time about a FIFA official. And um, I actually met the guy once when I was doing a story down at the Caribbean Football Union gathering uh, where they were trying to elect the FIFA president back in 26. And it's it was the ultimate concacaf Caribbean soccer politician situation. So now it's good to know that Dominican actually has some soccer going on where they're qualifying for things and can be known for for positive things and, like and that. This is my inter-Miami myopia, but uh, there's there's one key player, Edison Ascono, who has been actually my favorite youth player that's come through at the club. Uh, still hasn't seen a lot of first-team minutes, but uh, played a big role. And I honestly thought that he could have been like a U.S. national team player just because I saw him at youth levels and he was really impressive. But he's always wanted to play for Dominican Republic, scored a goal in their game against Guatemala uh, that got them to penalties and eventually through to the Olympics. So uh, it, it's it's interesting how there's kind of... They're another nation that's probably picking at every source of talent that they possibly can because it's a baseball country. It's, you know, in the, in the Caribbean or South America, America, you're either a soccer country or a baseball country, and the Dominican is very much a baseball territory, so it's really cool that they're able to field a soccer team, and maybe that leads to another generation of players that are interested in playing too. A couple more things to talk about here before we get to our interview with Mikey Varas. Uh, we mentioned transfer possibilities and sort of the here-we-go list. Tyler Adams, uh, the big news uh, the last couple of days, but a couple other names we're seeing on the here-we-go list. Christian Erickson to Man United and Richarlison to Spurs from Everton. And uh, these are these are significant moves. What are your thoughts? Well, so the Manchester United one with Christian Eriksen caught me completely by surprise, but I suppose if you're trying to reform a squad that has so many changes to make, you take a free transfer and a flyer on, on Christian Eriksen, a player who uh, once played for Ajax, it seems like, that is a, a minimum requirement for any new signing to Manchester United. Have you ever played at Ajax before? You're eligible to be uh, recruited 
by Manchester United at this point. But, you know, for me, I kind of see him almost in like that Juan Mata role where it's like you need a creative player off the bench in a big moment, knows what he's doing, incredible professional bring Christian Eriksen on and after what he showed at Brentford it's very there's very clearly something left in the tank there I'm actually it's it's one of the feel good stories of Manchester United and then the Richarlison one is interesting because obviously Antonio Conte loves signings he just wants to bring players in bring players in uh, it's it's a minimum requirement to having him at your club however this feels like an area where Spurs are actually well stocked at the moment as opposed to in those back three positions, felt like they could use some depth. Central midfield feels like they, they, they can use another option or better options. And instead, they add depth in the forward line where they already have Son, Kane, and Dejan Kulisevsky, who's a brilliant signing in the January window. So it's interesting to see where he fits if Antonio Conte decides to change shape. I doubt that very much. Is Dejan Kulisevsky all of a sudden going to become a right wing back? I doubt that as well. Um, but... They have some depth now in, in, in attacking positions at Tottenham. And then the one that hasn't gotten over the line is uh, it's been reported by several outlets, including The Athletic, is what happens to Cristiano Ronaldo now. Uh, it was reported earlier this summer that Manchester United weren't fielding offers, and now it's finally come out. He wants to move to a team that can challenge for big trophies, presumably try and get one more or two more goes in the Champions League before he you know, sets off to wherever the final stage of his career is, but he still wants to go for Champions Leagues, and I find the market for him a fairly small and dwindling market to be really, really interesting. Yeah, it is an intriguing one, and the, uh, the name Chelsea and, and Todd Bowley, who's sort of taken over their incoming signings process, uh, is really interesting. Chelsea really trying to make a splash, trying to sort of hijack the Rafinha transfer to Barcelona, We'll see if that ends up happening. Rafinha seems like he prefers to go to Barcelona. Uh, Barcelona may have some money now because they actually announced uh, uh, something they've mortgaged <laughs> of their it's, future this It is week. unbelievable <laughs> how broke Barcelona is. And they oh, act so geez. broke. Every news story is like, hey, everyone, here's how broke we are. We are so broke. You want to have your wedding at the Camp Nou? Come on over, like it, any possible thing to bleed uh, something out of this stone is. It, it honestly makes me sad every time I see Barcelona in the news. Like if we could just, if we could, we can find the money. We'll get this done. We promise. Like they just, they're looking for in every couch cushions for five euros to make a transfer happen. As easy as it is to make fun of, though, this deal does give Barcelona some wiggle room because they just announced Frank Kessie, which is not a small addition, free transfer from Milan, but presumably they're paying him a salary. Um, and, and he's a good player and, and the kind of player that Barcelona hasn't had enough of uh, in recent years. So uh, we'll see what Barcelona is able to do. But uh, Ronaldo, I don't see Chelsea as like a place like, I don't see that as a great fit with Thomas Tuchel and, and what he wants, though they're, they're just coming off sort of a failed center forward situation with Lukaku where that, you know, wasn't a good fit for what Tuchel wants to do. It's hard to see that Ronaldo would be a good fit for what Tuchel wants to do. I think Ronaldo at this point is best placed as a super sub striker, but I don't think he'll accept that role anywhere for any reason. He's just never going to be that guy. If you did accept that role, I think it'd be an amazing signing. If you sign him to play a role, I think he can certainly offer you, okay, if you're 1-0 down with 30 minutes to play and you got to bring a striker on that can help change the game, who better than Cristiano Ronaldo? But in the mold of wanting him to be your number nine match in, match out, 
I just don't see a club that would fancy themselves as being able to contend for the Champions League title would want to put a player like Cristiano up top to be their main option. I just don't see it. I don't think Chelsea is that team. I don't think, you know, Bayern Munich's name was tossed out because Lewandowski is going. I don't think Bayern Munich would be in for that. Certainly Paris Saint-Germain cannot afford another high-priced attacker that doesn't do any defending. I don't see where the option is. I really don't. And I think the market is depressing. And we saw this last year. It was a masterstroke from the Ronaldo camp where they basically invented a Man City offer out of thin air. And then... Manchester United saw that, got jealous, and brought him in Like by throwing the Chelsea thing out there. Are they trying to get Spurs and Arsenal to be jealous and throw money at Cristiano Ronaldo? I guess Arsenal need a striker, even though they just signed uh, Gabriel Jesus. Like, I don't know what the plan is here for him to go to a club that wants to compete at the level that he wants to compete at, unless he wants to take a much diminished role from where his status would suggest he should be playing. I think we went to, at one point mentioned the famous scene from the Ronaldo uh, documentary film where he's with George Mendez, his agent, and they say to each other, you're the best agent in the world. No, you're the best player in the world. And they kind of go back and forth for about like two or three minutes. And you actually realize that's what their conversations boil down to most <laughs> of the time. You're great at your job. And no, you're, you're more great at your job. And Mendez needs to be really good at his job right now because he's got to find a place for Ronaldo at a Champions League team preferably a champions league contender and do it for a salary that is not a huge cut for ronaldo but also find a place where he'll be able to play and and that's just that's a lot of factors to have to deal with that i don't think will be easy um and you know they've got a few weeks now to kind of figure out what they're going to do. I did notice that Ronaldo was not uh, Manchester United training due to family reasons. Uh, was <laughs> so I, mean, I hope ever, ever, everything's okay with the family. Why? Why isn't it? Why isn't it MLS time, Grant? Why? Why? Why is Ron? I, I guess because Ronaldo is a fierce competitor. But if he surveys the market and Jorge Mendez canvases all of the big Champions League clubs and they say, "Not for me," at what you want. Why isn't it MLS time? Well, I, I guess if the Champions League clubs don't want him, then would Ronaldo prefer to stay at Man United than go to MLS? And he probably would, right? I mean, I mean, if Eric Ten Hag says you're not part of my plans, you're going to be a super sub, or you know, Man United determined it to be untenable and decide that they want to move on too. I don't know. No, maybe. I mean, like at least at this point, the U.S. isn't completely off the table just because Ronaldo's case got dismissed, so he doesn't have to worry about getting hit with a subpoena or arrested if he comes to U.S. soil, which he still hasn't done, I don't think, in a really long time. Um, I don't find it likely this summer, uh, in part because on the demand side, how many MLS teams are going to do that deal? Uh, that would have to all transpire very, very quickly because the MLS window only lasts for so long. But we'll see. You know, um, we, that's a good seg into sort of our last little conversation before we get to our interview, which is MLS incoming transfers supposed to take the field this week. Lorenzo Insignia, Hector uh, in Toronto, Hector Herrera with Houston, um, Gareth Bale, Giorgio Chiellini with LAFC. You know, these are these are names, and it also happens to come during uh, rivalry week when 
there's a bunch of rivalry games on the same weekend. We have thoughts about this. Yeah. So, I mean, first off, if you're someone who maybe comes in and out of MLS, it feels like July the 8th is kind of the start of the after period when this league really has some more star power, interesting things, some storylines you want to follow in the run into the season and starts brilliantly with El Trafico on Friday night uh, with LAFC and LA Galaxy. But uh, we were talking in the pre-show about you know, it seems like there is a ton of great games to watch this weekend. You have LAFC, LA Galaxy. Uh, you have Seattle, Portland on Saturday afternoon at 4.30. Uh, you have uh, Houston and Dallas. You have Orlando and Inter-Miami. You have RSL and Colorado. These are, you know, five games in a weekend where in any one weekend, they would be the highlight of that weekend. And the only thing that, that we were saying was maybe you spread these out over the course of the season. And Rivalry Week is a cool weekend. It captures attention. They run some promos against it, and there's really great matchups in local markets. But these feel like the games that are the headline makers every week. I would love for, on a 4th of July weekend, we have a big Seattle-Portland game, and that's the headline. You know, in every every week, you know, in Italy, for instance, there's six teams where you can make a headline matchup out of. And it seems like there's one every weekend. In the Premier League, the same thing. When you have the ability to make headline matchups, in my opinion, you want to spread them out over the course of time. And while I'm very much looking forward to next weekend, I'll be sat in front of my television watching a bunch of games. I want to see those games every week. Uh, so that, that, that would be my only thing about rivalry week. Yeah, me too. I totally agree with you on this. Whatever money MLS is getting from the sponsor it has that's, that sponsors rivalry week, I don't think it's worth it. I really don't. And, and I think one of the biggest issues with MLS is the regular season not mattering enough and not enough individual big games to to really look forward to from a national perspective. And you choose to put a bunch of these games on the same weekend. I, I just don't get it. You got to spread them out. If you want to actually create a bigger national footprint for television and MLS, you need to do this. Get rid of rivalry week. It's dumb. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I think I think the week it's the week itself is great. Like when you're when you're sat in front of the television, it's really fun to watch. But I want to I want to see those every week. It's fun, and then it's right before uh, you know a full slate of midweek games as well. So um, you have like those games to look forward to. Maybe there's some prioritizing, but uh, yeah, in in my opinion, I think you want to have like one really big match. Or say, all right, that's the game to watch this weekend. It's a cool national TV matchup, and we can sink our teeth into Houston and Dallas. I think the the, the Texas rivalry games this year have been tremendous, well worth watching uh, for a bunch of teams that are improved and are you know taking big steps forwards as clubs. Um, uh, you know, you, you want those stories to have their chance to shine in a given weekend. Totally agree with you on all of that. And I am excited to see these players and what sort of impact they make on their teams. Gareth Bale, we're recording this on Monday, hasn't even been presented yet. So like, if Taylor Twelman's reporting that he's going to be available later this week, okay, great. Um, you know, I'm just curious to see what kind of shape he's in and, and what sort of capabilities he might have, how far he can even go minutes-wise. Yeah, Wales, golf, and LAFC. That's uh, that that that'll that'll be the the, the pecking order for Gareth Bell. I, I hope he plays. I hope that game is massive. LAFC have been fantastic this season. There were some really cool scenes um, after they won a midweek against Dallas. Which, by the way, to me, a, a, an MLS market that's really impressive is when there's a big crowd and a cool atmosphere on a Wednesday night. 
Like LAFC getting a packed house and there's legitimate momentum building there. It, it would appear after the Chiellini and the, and the Bale signings, that fan base is reinvigorated yet again. But that was a brilliant atmosphere on a Wednesday night in the middle of the summer. And that those were amazing scenes after the game. Although the audacity on whoever decided to pour water down the presumably very expensive suit of Giorgio Chiellini, big shout, big shout. <laughs> That the whoever did that, some stones on them. But uh, yeah, th- those are th- those are some real cool atmospheres. You know, Austin at home in a midweek is a real cool atmosphere. If you're putting together a good atmosphere on a Wednesday night, you've got yourselves a proper soccer city. Thumbs up, stamp of approval from me, Chris Whittingham. Great to talk to you as always. Thanks, Grant. Now here's my interview with Mikey Varas. Our guest now is Mikey Varas, the head coach of the U.S. men's under-20 national team, which has just qualified for two tournaments, the Under-20 World Cup, and for the first time since 2008, the Olympic men's soccer tournament. Congratulations, Mikey, and thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it, Grant. Thank you for having me. So we're recording this on Saturday, coming out Monday. You do have the CONCACAF final on Sunday against the Dominican Republic, but we do know you're in the Olympics after your 3-0 win at Honduras on Friday. Terrific performance, especially the passing dominance to build this 3-0 lead in the first half. What did you ask from your guys when it came to controlling the game like that? Yeah, we knew that Honduras was a team that thrived in the second ball and direct game. So we wanted to make sure that we controlled as many moments with the ball as possible. And then also once they did start going direct to make sure that we control the final line with aerial duels and winning second balls. Um, And that was from the tactical sense. But at the end of the day, the most important thing was confronting the moment of, you know, 15, 16,000 fans that were gonna be hostile towards us and um, making sure that the boys were brave in that moment, relentless in that moment and together um, in all of those moments. And and they they did an amazing job. How hostile was it down there? What did you experience? Yeah, uh, there was a Honduran national anthem was uh, something I will never forget. You know, 18,000 people singing it at the top of their lungs. Um, The, Obviously, the normal whistles and the jeers, but, you know, things were being thrown on the field. Laser was being pointed into our goalkeeper's eyes. It it was a full-on um, high-level CONCACAF moment for the boys. That's hard enough when you're talking about professionals in their 20s and 30s, but... You have, you have a really young team. These are young guys. How, how did they deal with this? How, did you work with them at all on how to deal with these types of CONCACAF moments? What More than anything, what we've strived to do is make a training environment and a camp environment that's as competitive as possible um, and that tries to generate a culture where, where the team is super united. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, we say they're young players, but young players... Uh, often surprise us when we give them autonomy. And uh, sometimes it's uh, us with more experience in years that actually uh, get more nervous in those moments or think more pessimistically. And, and young people are really inspirational and uh, they're able to, to really be brave in, in a lot of these moments because they're, they're willing to take risk, you know? And uh, that's really inspiring. You've done something by qualifying for the Olympics that three named coaches, Jason Kreiss, Andy Herzog, Caleb Porter, could not achieve in the three previous Olympic qualifying cycles. Those are all very good coaches. 
what has your overall plan been in building toward this tournament since you took over last year? Well, I think it's a little unfair um, to compare me uh, with those groups because those groups, they fought a whole different type of uh, qualifying process. And um, the amount of time they had with their team, uh, what players uh, were able to come to their to their qualifying tournament, when the tournament was held. Um, there's no guarantee that me doing the exact same process in their shoes back then would have had the success we had today. So I want to make that really clear. Those are really, really uh, top coaches and uh, nothing about what we've done here has any indication of, of, of what they've done in the past. Uh, but our overall uh, thought process with this group was they hadn't played together for two years due to the pandemic. We knew that in November. And so first and foremost, we wanted to really make sure that we uh, developed a culture of unity, of competitiveness, of having a growth mindset, um, and of having good people. Um, the next stage was to really implement a clear style of play that um, is federation-wide, starting with the senior team all the way down to our youngest teams. And then the third thing was to um, find a way to uh, have the players take ownership over the process and take control of the team. Because at the end of the day, they're the ones who play the game um, and they're the main actors in the story. You had four Philadelphia Union players on the field in the semifinal. You have come from the FC Dallas organization in your experience. It seems like there's a few MLS teams that are really getting youth development right. Dallas and Philadelphia are right near the top. What's happening these days with some of these MLS development academies and the talent they're producing that maybe we didn't see five, 10 years ago? Well, I think across the board, all the MLS academies have been doing a tremendous job compared to um, where we were at 15, 15 years ago. Um, the investment that's going into the academies, the investment that's going into coaching education facilities, it's, it's pretty incredible. That's been happening for a little bit. I think you're right, you know, Philadelphia, FC Dallas, I would say uh, Red Bull, um, and I'm probably missing someone else that have uh, done a really good job in terms of volume of players. But if you look at the league right now, you know, Caleb Wiley's not on this trip with us. And he's starting games with Atlanta United, you know, in, um, in the first division. Brian Gutierrez is playing starting games with Chicago Fire. So is Glagos Lolina. So across the board, I feel like the MLS as a league has a lot to be proud of because uh, not only have they created a good infrastructure in terms of um, educating the coaches, providing the players with facilities and a good training environment, uh, recruiting players, but now the final step is really starting to blossom, which is first team coaches are giving young players opportunity when they're not quite ready yet. And that's not so easy to do when your uh, job depends on results. I know there's some fans out there, and, and now as U.S. soccer has grown and grown in recent years, there's a section of the fan base and even the media that's developed that follows the under-20 national team closely. But there's also another section of fans that maybe aren't fully engaged until you do something like qualify for the Olympics or, or have a chance to win the CONCACAF title. And maybe asking right now, who is Mikey Varas? Uh, and... 
when you get that question, you know, what what do you answer about your story? I know you've been with the FC, with FC Dallas, you've been with Sacramento Republic. Sort of what's your story as a coach? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm just a regular guy, to be honest. Pretty boring. Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, uh, I coached youth soccer my whole life, and um, I didn't have a professional playing career. Uh, I got into coaching very young. I was lucky enough to be surrounded by top coaches that I learned a ton from. Uh, my first 10 years, I was probably not even the sixth best coach in the uh, in the Northern California where I grew up. And um, I would say what defines me most are probably my core values, which is every day I wake up, uh, I wake up with the intentions of being a good person, uh, having a growth mindset to learn um, and to embrace competition and, and in the pressure moments really enjoy that. Is it somewhat easier now to, to break in as a coach and get experience even if you didn't play professionally than maybe it was in the past? I haven't thought about that question because um, I've never really thought about having, uh, you know, my, my main goal wasn't like I'm going to uh, coach uh, the U20s or I'm going to coach professionally. Uh, my main goal was just to be the best coach wherever I was at that moment, and whether that was coaching a U12 team um, or that was coaching uh, FC Dallas U17 team or being promoted to this uh, to the first team. What I do know is um, I've worked hard uh, in, in my life, but at the end of the day, um, opportunity and, uh, and luck has a lot to do with it. And finding people who believe in you is something that's completely out of your control. And I've been very fortunate in that in that way. We talk a lot about dual nationals, especially in the United States, because so many countries have connections to the United States. You're a dual national. Could you explain that? Yeah, my father's from Chile. Um, my mother is uh, American, and um, I, I, I definitely sympathize and have a soft spot for dual nationals and the, the difficulty that that presents because uh, it's impossible to say uh, I love this country over this country because. Both those countries uh, are coursing through our DNA and uh, you love them most. And uh, when the U.S. is playing, I know all of those guys, they want the U.S. to do incredible, you know, and um, it's, it's not an easy situation, but it's also one that provides a lot of opportunity. Do you think being a dual national yourself has had has helped you in any way to connect with players who are dual nationals who may have a decision to make at some point. Yeah, I think anytime you can empathize with a player and put yourself in their shoes, it always helps. And so this has been a great learning lesson for me about actually how important um, the component of empathy is. You know, I naturally had empathy for them because I actually know exactly what it feels like. But I think uh, it's a good lesson for me as a, as a coach. Uh, to make sure that I find uh, other situations that maybe I don't have exactly the same um, experience as them, but to make sure that you always demonstrate that empathy with them, because I think it is really important. There was a good interview done by my friend Adam Bells with you on Scuffed. We talked about yoga and mindfulness. Uh, what's what's your experience with that? What's your stance on it? Well, yeah, I want to clarify. You know, yoga for me as a person, as a person from a personal perspective, is really important. Um, but it's not something that I push on anybody because these are these are personal choices of of what you do that helps you live a better life. 
Um, from a coaching perspective, what we do work on is um, performance breath, controlling our breath, and um, making sure that we're able to calm our nerves and calm our thoughts and be present in the moment. The Under-20 World Cup isn't until next May in Indonesia. What's going to happen with your team in the months ahead, the many months now between uh, this tournament and the Under-20 World Cup? Well, as you stated earlier, tomorrow we're going to play a final, um, and we're fully focused on that. And then the second that final is done, um, we'll start preparing uh, another competition platform for the entire pool. You know, um, what players do with their clubs between now and um, the final roster being selected is going to matter. And um, it's going to be competitive. And that's how it was getting into this camp. And again, because we have good people, because we have guys who have a growth mindset and because we have guys, most importantly, who embrace competition, we know that we'll end up with the right roster. And the Olympics obviously isn't until 2024. Are you expecting to coach this team at the Olympics? I have no expectations. Um, We went into that game not thinking about ourselves, but thinking about our country. And uh, we knew that what we were doing was from a selfless uh, motivation, purely. Um, And I mean that with with all my heart. Uh, Whatever happens with that, happens. And uh, all we're focused on right now is is uh, doing the best we can with our with our U20s. And I just want to wrap up just with a question about how the Federation has approached hiring you and how you go about your process and and how you think the Federation might approach the actual 2024 Olympics roster wise and, and all that, or is that just too far off? Yeah, I think that those are conversations that we'll start having with leadership, but um, from my experience with the federation so far, this is going to be a um, this is going to be a group collaborative process, you know. And uh, Greg is going to definitely have influence. Um, Ernie, Brian, uh, Barry, Tony, myself. I think um, it's going to be a group uh, a group collaboration because at the end of the day, it's about the crest and it's about our country, and it's not about uh, it's not about any one person. It's about it's about doing what's right for our nation. Mikey Varas is the head coach of the U.S. men's under-20 national team, which has just qualified for the under-20 World Cup and the Olympic men's soccer tournament. Congratulations again, Mikey, and thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it, Grant. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Mikey Varas as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. Thank you.